Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, July 5th, 2023, and today we're going to be asking and answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last week. And for those of you who uh, weren't able to catch my weekend, uh, my midweek roundups while I was in China the last two weeks, uh, you can catch those on our Facebook page as well as our uh, podcast version uh, through Podbean, uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You'll be able to find those two uh, shortened versions of the midweek roundup recorded while I was in China. Couldn't get them up live, unfortunately, because of bandwidth issues and VPN issues, but certainly uh, I'm glad that I'll, I'm able to share those two episodes with you. So hopefully you get a chance to catch up on what's been happening. We'll touch a little bit on some news coming out after uh, after our, our visit to China the last two weeks, but uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment. As we do each week, uh, we take the questions that we talk about here on the Roundup from the news stories we have featured in our newsletter that comes out Monday mornings each week, and that's called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education Consulting, the name of the company, uh, the consulting business I started back in 2014. And uh, we take that new, that new comes, newsletter comes out in a couple different formats, either uh, an email subscription uh, from our website, I'll drop the link in the live chat uh, up from that, uh, so you can subscribe if you prefer to get that in your email inbox, Monday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern, or if you get your International Ed News via LinkedIn. There's a LinkedIn version that has well over 1,150 subscribers to date. So really excited about uh, the folks that are getting our news each week uh, through the top SMIE stories that we see each week. So we take those themes that we see developing in the news stories and come up with our questions that we answer here on the Roundup each week. So thanks again for being a part of the of the conversation. And I uh, always encourage your questions and comments uh, during the live chat uh, to make uh, and give us a chance to respond and include those in uh, how we talk about these issues of the day. So first up, uh, what does the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action mean for international education? Uh, it was the biggest news story of the week last week when that came down, and uh, the Supreme Court, uh, no surprise really, uh, making a decision to, uh, uh, in a very um, one-sided 6-3 decision, uh, the conservative court has been uh, moving that way anyway in the last few years. So uh, certainly both sides in this case, both Harvard and University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, uh, are very selective institutions. Uh, the Ivy Leagues like Harvard accept, accept less than 4% of their applicants every year nowadays. Uh, North Carolina as one of the more selective uh, flagship institutions and in, state institutions in the country accepts uh, 2 in 10 of their applicants each year. So uh, these are two obviously selective, highly selective institutions that have used uh, affirmative action standards in their admissions decision-making process uh, for years, and uh, and that has gone basically unchall unchallenged until these lawsuits uh, finally made their way to the Supreme Court. And I guarantee you, and this is uh, the way my, my, my hot take on this issue, is that as it impacts international students coming to to the United States, I doubt it's going to have that much of an impact on 
their chances of getting admitted to our country. And there's a few reasons for that. We'll go into that today uh, in this uh, question. Uh, most of the international ed associations have come out against this ruling and for, for political reasons. And they, uh, certainly they have uh, taken that stance and access and equitable access to higher education as one of their guiding principles. And I get that. Uh, but I don't think this decision, which has been long in the long in the long in the coming, long in the making, uh, should be a surprise, uh, given the nature of the court. And certainly, you're you're deluded if you don't think these highly selective institutions have figured out ways to include in representing a, bringing in a diverse class of candidates to their institutions each year. Haven't figured out a way to make. Uh, diversity and the ways they categorize that, uh, and that, that is changing it on a lot of campuses, how they categorize diversity. So that is, uh, while there are no quotas that are, can be set uh, by law now, uh, by decision, uh, that there are ways that they can be incorporated, which into a very holistic process that has always been about fine margins at the most selective institutions. Uh, there's a couple of articles this week that I'll, I'll be dropping the link to. One is a very impassioned uh, uh, one from Andrew Gordon, founder of Diversity Abroad, uh, and his, um, uh, his, his company uh, about the impact on, he thinks, of, uh, and his company believes, and many in the, in the profession might believe, that a significant number of institutions that send the most students to study abroad are also on the list of the most selective colleges and universities, the very institutions that will be most impacted by the affirmative act effect action decisions. Uh, based on past bans on affirmative action, he says, in uh, California and Michigan, the number of black and Latino students at selective campuses will drop significantly, hence decreasing the population of available students from these backgrounds to study abroad. So, and the impact of fewer students of color studying abroad, potential to create unequally, uniquely isolating experiences from some of the students of color who do go abroad as they will be most likely to be the only one or one of a few uh, that go abroad. There's gonna be challenges in the use of uh, race in awarding study abroad scholarships uh, in, in terms of how they're awarded. And if you have privately funded scholarships, you can get away with uh, having all the criteria that you want. If it's public money, then it's, yeah, there's, there's maybe some challenges down the road. So I, th but I will share Andrew's concern here that on the, on the study abroad side, domestically, it may, may impact uh, if the, based on those past cases uh, of number of black and Latino students uh, at selective campuses uh, will be dropping. Uh, and those most selective campuses, um, doesn't means at those campuses it may be dropping, but you, those students may be going to other institutions now, and those institutions may also be encouraged, encouraging more uh, students to come uh, uh, from diverse backgrounds and have different ways that they can attract them through scholarships, through other means. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, and I do agree that the most selective institutions might be the ones because they have used race as a, as a criteria for admission, uh, that that's not the case at selective institutions that have figured it out and said, well, we're not going to actively make our decisions based on race. We're going to be as, as race blind as we can. But they factor in other, other ways of looking at 
the bringing in a diverse applicant pool based on where their high schools are. Uh, and that's something that I think a lot of uh, universities in the selective category will do. Uh, to look at the locations of the students and where they're coming from and perhaps target certain geographic areas that traditionally are going to be represented by uh, diverse communities, uh, lesser developed, lesser represented uh, in, uh, groups on their, camp on their college campuses. Uh, so I, I think there are ways around this and, and you're foolish if you think that these institutions haven't thought about that already and haven't put in place these kind of uh, worst case scenario um, plans for what happens if affirmative action does take place. So these are smart institutions. These are, one, these are ones that are highly selective for a reason uh, because of the quality of their education, the quality of their experience, and they have resources that they've been committing to this for years and probably been thinking, well, <laughs> this is going to be something that we need to be prepared for. And it's not like this should be coming as a big shock to anybody. If, uh, if anyone who's been following politics over the last five, ten years has seen this trend moving towards a more conservative court um, based on the appointments that the past administration was able to make. So that uh, institutions that are in that in that bracket, that most selective institutions that are going to be the ones that relied on divert, on, on race as a criteria for admission, they are now... Um, in the boat with uh, with most most colleges and universities that aren't uh, using race as a, a criteria for admission, which is the greater majority, and that's the second article that we'll share from uh, from the Chronicle, and that uh, indicates uh, that the Supreme Court admissions ruling mainly affects selective colleges. They're a tiny slice of higher education, so uh, and when we say tiny, uh, we're talking about colleges that accept twenty percent or less. Of, uh, of the institutions. So uh, they, uh, according to, let's see, uh, let's go to this most recent data here. Uh, look at the institutions by selectivity shows the few colleges most affected by the Supreme Court ruling uh, that impact, uh, that accept 0 to 25 uh, percent. That is only 68 colleges, so that uh, accept 25% or less of the applicants each year. And undergraduate, and the enrollment at those institutions is just over 40, 40, 480,000, uh, just at those 68 institutions in the United States, two, to four, two and four-year institutions that have selectivity rates uh, below 25%. So that's the sliver, tiny sliver, of who we're talking about. My institution, UNLV, we're not in the open category, but we're, we're, we accept 75 to 100 percent of our students. Uh, next, it's another community college or open access that way, but 75 to 100 percent of our applicants are admitted, and we're in that category of, uh, according to the Chronicle. And diversity is, we're fortunate that we're in a part of the country where uh, we're already a very diverse area. Uh, 30 percent of our students are are Latino, about 28% are whites, 15% Asian, 10-12% black, uh, and then 2 to 3% uh, Native American. So we have the diversity already at our campus, and we've not had, and we don't use uh, race as a criteria in admissions. So we're able to accept um, 
students from a wide range of, er of uh, diverse areas of the country, uh, geographically and ethnically, uh, according to race. We don't make those decisions. That's just how the makeup, ethnic makeup of our campus, and that has a lot to do with the, the area around our campus itself. A lot of the large flagships uh, in the United States are, uh, are in more rural regions that are not in big cities that have already diverse populations, so there's less chance that they get m more, fewer students from their re immediate region that uh, are going to be in that diversity category uh, that they that, that are after. So uh, what, when it comes to international students, I, I, I look and think very seriously about this, that yes, when it comes to the most selective institutions, the top, uh, to, when you look at the top 25 institutions receiving uh, international students, many of them are in that, uh, that 68%. Uh, that's just uh, na nature of the beast. Uh, the uh, international students um, in the greatest numbers apply to the most selective institutions, yes. Not all of them get in, obviously, and they have backup, in backup plans for second and third choice and fourth choice that might be outside that top 20 or that 0 to 25% selectivity band. So uh, they still find places. Uh, they are at every, every institution uh, that's uh, within uh, every range of institution within the United States. So, um, but are those same institutions that want and have that great diversity of international students in terms of their backgrounds, are they all of a sudden now uh, making decisions and not having a plan in place to how they review those students? Uh, some of them might have separate uh, numbers, a total number of international students they wish to bring in each year in their, in their selective classes. So uh, they um, will come up with criteria to make that 200 of their 1,000 incoming class, uh, if they take 20% international, uh, if 20% of those are, are international, they'll use the, the criteria that they have to bring in those students. That's, if, and if diversity is one of those criteria that they're looking for, they'll find ways to do that. And they can do that by country, not necessarily by race. So that's an easy way for, international, for selective institutions that are probably already doing that uh, to make diversity a priority, if that isn't already, which I'm sure it is, uh, at these most selective institutions. You focus on regions of the world that you you uh, you can uh, you, you know you want to attract more students from, and then that is uh, if that's a criteria uh, for diversifying your international student population, and uh, if that also matches and meets a diversity criteria for your institution and how you count those students, then that will happen. So I think uh, the political blowback uh, against this from the higher ed perspective is typically going to be against the decision by the Supreme Court, but I, I think the reality on the ground is these colleges are prepared and should have been prepared for this, And the, but the vast majority of colleges weren't using race already as a criteria for admissions, so it's not going to affect them in their day-to-day -day operations. They'll have ways, and uh, as I mentioned, I've, I've done app breeding for private universities in the past, and they had diversity as a priority, so but they weren't doing it by race. They were using economic factors and geographic location factors, uh, zip codes, to be able to uh, identify areas that they wanted to grow their enrollments from. So I think there's uh, there are ways to do this, and I think that's something uh, that uh, gets missed in all the politics of the of the uh, on the response to uh, to the decision. Uh, most in higher ed will not be happy with this decision uh, because it, it provided cover for institutions to be able to use that as a uh, use race as a factor in how they made decisions. But the reality is there are a lot of ways to, to increase your diversity. 
and to just say, well, no, we're not going to be able to do anything now because it's not a, not, uh, not a protected class anymore. Uh, that's something that I think uh, gets, is, is, a, is not the reality for the greater majority of institutions. Again, only 68% of the more than 3,000 two- and four-year colleges uh, that have selectivity rates are going to be impacted by this. Uh, and in terms of uh, part of their admissions criteria already. And using using race as a criteria for admissions, so a very politicized issue. And, and my my top my thoughts may be very much outside uh, the mainstream here, but in terms of uh, the the on the reality as it will impact international students coming into the United States, uh, there there may well be some challenges if that if can, if institutions uh, were using race as a factor. Uh, but I don't think it's being more politicized than the, uh, the actual impact will be because I think those, those institutions have found ways already to make plans to, uh, uh, to accommodate for uh, to bring in a more diverse class and figuring out ways to do that that don't rely on using race as a criteria. So it's a simple, simple uh, shift in priorities uh, that can still get, get you to the same goal without it being an explicit criteria for admissions. And Harvard's smart enough, North Carolina's smart enough to have already thought that through. So the big schools will, will still be selective and they'll still bring in diverse classes because they have the pick of the best students in the world applying to them. So it's, uh, it's going, to, going to, from all, all backgrounds, so I think that this is not a mountain out of a molehill type of an issue but certainly uh, the, 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 the real-time impact on it uh, will, will be less than the, than the worst-case scenario that most uh, higher ed associations are, are, are portraying at this point. So that's enough on that topic. Uh, we'll move on to the second topic of the day, and that is, what is the way forward with China and international education? And obviously, I have a little bit of uh, perspective on this, having just returned from two weeks in China, my first trip there in 15 years. Uh, and it was a very eye-opening one. The country has changed massively in that time. Uh, at the last time I was there in 2008, uh, social media was just starting to take off. And it was right before all the uh, Western platforms were just starting to get banned. And the Chinese versions of those were just starting to take off. So it wasn't really uh, hugely um, uh, hugely, a huge shift in that respect uh, in terms of where it is. That was probably one of the biggest shifts in terms of the social media side and uh, the digitalization of life in China. Uh, and that is reflected in a lot of ways uh, in terms of, um, uh, I mentioned during, uh, during our trip that we were having challenges paying for things. And that was uh, something that was a little unexpected. We kind of had heard from some of our Chinese students who had helped us prep for our trip that uh, we need, uh, uh, China is almost a cashless society now. Everything's done through apps, uh, through Weichen Pay or, uh, or, or Alipay. Those are the two main uh, ways that you pay for anything in China now. Uh, from buying uh, something at the store, uh, showing your QR code from your Alipay app, to uh, buy, uh, going on a taxi ride like we have with Uber now. Uh, you know that your Uber, Uber in the U.S., if you take a ride or Lyft or any of those, those are tied to rideshare apps. They're tied to a credit card or debit card. So that's automatically coming out. You just That's all done uh, uh, electronically. Uh, put that on steroids. That's how China is for everything. Uh, even vendors on the street will take Alipay, uh, gift, uh, uh, gift stores that you go to, uh, tourist shops that you go to, they'll, take, they'll only take Alipay or uh, Weishin Pay. So you, you realize quickly 
that if you don't have these things already, uh, you are in a real bind for paying for anything. And unless you're staying at a Western hotel even, uh, you can't pay uh, except by uh, Alipay uh, or WeShinPay. So, uh, and the, the added complication has been, and we certainly feel, felt this while we were there, is that Alipay and WeShinPay, you could only tie debit cards to that. So imagine if you had to pay for a hotel and you only had a debit card to do so, uh, you'd have to have all that money up front that you need to pay for hotels on your WeShinPay or Alipay account, uh, in, your, in your checking account, uh, debit card, whatever, uh, that's tied to this uh, Alipay to pay for the bigger, bigger, bigger ticket expenses. There was even problems uh, when uh, we, were, we needed to pay uh, one of our uh, university partners had paid for our hotel rooms and we, we, we said, no, we, we need to pay for our, our hotel rooms. So they had paid for them. We asked we wanted to reimburse them. We couldn't even do that based, uh, if you already have a Chinese bank account, you could have done that person-to-person uh, -person within China, but we didn't. So we couldn't use even our debit cards to pay someone for the, the services that they had given us. Uh, it was about 800 bucks. We couldn't pay them directly through Alipay or Wish and Pay because our are uh, because because of the banking regulations that uh, in terms of making payments to people in China uh, to person to person China per person to person in China there there are restrictions on how much we can pay uh, and you can't do that if we needed to pay 100 bucks we couldn't even break it down into 300 and 300 and 200 or anything like that we had to we had to have our our professor who was from China who had a Chinese bank account and a, we shouldn't we shouldn't pay Alipay he paid he reimbursed uh, this uh, university partner, and then uh, we reimbursed him uh, So through Apple Pay. So uh, learning a lot about electronic payments, uh, we certainly uh, encountered a number of roadblocks. And our provost who was with us on the trip, we made the point to a couple of people as we were having these, having these issues uh, that uh, we, uh, we really need uh, the uh, Alipay and WePay to WeChat Pay. We should pay to have uh, features that where we can use credit cards uh, through these uh, two pay payment mechanisms, uh, and uh, and we, we we complained to the Ministry of Education and a couple other people that it, how difficult it was for us to pay for things in China, and part of this is a consequence of what's happened in China for the last three years. They have been shut down to the outside world for for all wants and purposes, uh, and they. Uh, are now reopening and starting to see significant traffic uh, that um, uh, I will say from the time I was in Guangzhou through Wuhan to Yaqing or Iqing, Icheng, uh, where we were for the Three Gorges Dam. On those, in those three cities, I was the only Western face, or the, our, West, our group was the only Western faces I saw the entire time. When we would go walking in town uh, to some of the sites, and we'd, we'd just get all these stares and wonderment. We'd have little kids coming up to us and asking if they can get their pictures taken with us. I mean, it was really sweet uh, here, seeing the kids do that. And just there was just this wonderment, and it's like, wow. Uh, there, there, there are outsiders back in our in our country, and some the little kids they'd never seen anybody uh, uh, from from the West uh, visiting uh, their country, so uh, or their city. So it was very surprising. Well, obviously, when we got to Beijing, going to some of the more touristy places, we started to see uh, see that. Uh, so very interesting to, to capture uh, that interest here. So in terms of what. Um, uh, 
Yeah, we, we see a lot of challenges in the future uh, with China uh, on, on some re-engaging there. And for us at UNLV, it was a first time engaging. We have a couple of minor agreements that our College of Engineering has had uh, that haven't really haven't resulted in significant student flows yet. Uh, but uh, the hope is now with these more significant partnerships that we've made with higher ranked universities than we are in China, with Wuhan University, Beijing Normal University, uh, uh, Sun Yat-sen University, where we're going to be sending a group of hospitality students next summer. These trips are meaningful, and they're meaningful in a lot of different ways. And I think these, these educational exchanges, frankly, are going to be how China really reopens and how we start repairing a lot of the damage done politically over the last six, seven years. And I think we're, we're, we were certainly seeing an, an, a real eagerness to re-engage from the Chinese side. Uh, even with one university that's uh, more of a natural peer for us, uh, they, they were very anxious and eager to start working on, on joint programs and re-engaging. And so for us, it was eye-opening and for me, refreshing to see that. Uh, that I asked at each stop along the way, hey, have you had any other U.S. senior delegations visit you since the pandemic? And they all said, no, you're the first. They've had maybe a couple of a couple of them had Australian delegations visit. Maybe one had a British university, but we were the first U.S. institution coming back. So that means a lot, first back in. And uh, we are putting ourselves in a positive position as an institution because we took the took the gamble of going and going early, earlier than perhaps uh, most have. So I think we're, we're starting to see significant uh, traction in China and interest in China and re-engaging. Uh, ours is a, a multi-level strategy for student enrollments. Uh, certainly there's going to be study abroad going uh, trips to China that we'll be initiating um, with, with our new partners. Uh, there's going to be more flows coming to us that we're working through agents, uh, working through uh, universities and colleges in China that are looking for two plus twos. Uh, we have a couple of three plus ones already in existence, uh, looking at some other options for three plus one plus one postgrad programs. So there's a lot of opportunity there, and I think we're, we're in a good position at UNLV. And I, 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 there's an article here in from the South China Morning Post that I'll, I'll, I'll drop in as well that does say that um, after Secretary Blinken, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, he made a recent trip to China a week before we got there uh, to kind of restart uh, the positive direction of uh, U.S.-China relations. So um, one area that the that he he discussed uh, with his counterparts in China was uh, the importance of educational exchanges, and a number of institutions are starting to get that, uh, and Chinese institutions are certainly being encouraged to reengage. Uh, and explore option, new options as well. So I think the table is set for a restart to these um, two relations with China. Uh, and on the university level, uh, that can certainly jumpstart what happens on the political level So or be facilitated by at least a more uh, a warming of relations. Uh, certainly not completely open yet. But uh, we are going to see some changes coming. And uh, the, one of those changes is uh, that there are now moves by we, uh, by the folks who run uh, Tencent, and that's the WeChat, uh, WeChat Pay, WeChat Pay, uh, that they uh, can link credit cards issued by Visa to their WeChat app starting next month, and uh, that will help them pay for hotel rooms using a credit card. This comes after Mastercard announced last week that cardholders can link credit or debit cards to the Alipay digital wallet, so they can pay, finally pay like a local. Uh, so that is uh, something that uh, the Ant Group in uh, Ant Group owns Alipay. 
uh, WeChat Pay is owned by Tencent Holdings. So uh, that is uh, a brighter future for those looking to go back to China. Uh, it's pretty soon you will have that ability to pay, uh, to pay through credit card using WeChat Pay or, uh, or Alipay. But you'll have to do that, get that set up before you leave. That's one, one thing that you really need to focus on. Before you, uh, before you go on that trip, make sure you have that set up. Uh, the last quick thing, I, I will give a shout out to my friends at Inted. Uh, for those that who, who know me, one of the founding principles of SMIE is social media uh, and international ed. Uh, and social media management is something I've been practicing since uh, I, was, uh, I, I was at uh, Ball State uh, when I was uh, starting, uh, starting when social media was just taking off in the mid-90s. Uh, and that became a regular part of my job there uh, and using that tool to reach prospective students. When I joined in at, at, at Education USA, I found Hootsuite. And Hootsuite has been with me, a major reason I've been successful in, in, with my company and with my social media content with these newsletters is you see these, con these kinds of issues percolating up. And for me, this is really important because uh, the this Intet article reflects what I've been talking about for years about Hootsuite and how valuable it is in terms of managing all the content that you have uh, on social media through monitoring uh, how, your, how your name is being used out there in the marketplace through mentions, scheduling, uh, team collaboration, data analytics, targeting ads, running campaigns. So there's a whole suite of things that Hootsuite can do. I had the pleasure of meeting uh, the founder and uh, at their headquarters in Vancouver during the NASA conference in 2009 or 2010, 2010 or 11. So it was uh, really eye-opening for me and certainly one uh, a trip that I, I will always remember. Uh, it's been with part of my, uh, my social media life for uh, almost uh, 12 years now. So 12, 13 years. So, but check out this article from Minted that talks about the value of Hootsuite and how it can really help institutions uh, expand their footprints with social media and, and uh, minimize the amount of time that they're having to dedicate to it in terms of the planning and the implementation. Uh, those that get the newsletter each week, uh, every story that's in that newsletter also gets scheduled as a social media post out uh, for the following week. Uh, so that's, uh, I do that three or four, up to five, six, seven articles a day get posted on using Hootsuite, scheduled at times that where I know I get the most uh, impact and responses and engagement from readers. So there's a lot of, a lot of positives through, through using Hootsuite, and I certainly encourage you all to, to check it out. So that's all we have for you this week. And until next time, wish you the very best and have a great day. Cheers.